no place to go. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Man, it does the most wonderful time of the Christmas preparations come in many forms. Your favorite songs, your favorite ornaments, lights, food, friends, and family. This year, during the month of December, we will be preparing by looking at four songs from the Gospel of Luke. These songs, written in preparation and response to the birth of Jesus, will help prepare our own hearts to receive the gift that He is. My name is Sanjay Merchant. If I haven't met you, um, I bring you greetings from sunny Chicago. <laughs> I think I've mentioned this before. Um, I'm not a Midwesterner. I'm a Californian. So I love coming to North Shore uh, for a number of reasons, but one of them is I need to be in striking distance of the Pacific at all times if I can be. I'm in denial in the Midwest. Uh, I live in a town called Roselle in Illinois, just west of Chicago, western suburbs. And I, I love the Midwest, but, but it's a lot different than West Coast culture. So people ask me in the suburbs, what town do you live in? And I'll usually say, Roselle, California. And they'll say, I think you mean Illinois. And my response is, I'm a Californian. I'm pretty sure I live in California. I don't know if you recognize this, but that's called denial. So <laughs> it's great to be back in uh, in the West Coast. Um, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke today, so our ushers have Bibles. If you guys want to come forward, and for those of you who already have your Bibles, turn to Luke 1, or in your Bible app to Luke 1, and that's where we'll, we'll start today. So Luke opens his Gospel telling us about a man named Zechariah, a man named Zechariah. And we're told that he's a priest and he's a very godly man. He's, uh, we're told, advanced in age is what it says. And he himself is going to tell us plainly he's old. So he's an elder priest. And he's married to a woman named Elizabeth. And they've never had children. Apparently she's been barren. And that was something in the first century of, a, um, of an embarrassment for women. It's still hard. For couples today, and I'm sure people here know something about this intimately, it's still hard to um, want to have children and not have that blessing. Um, there was something of a social embarrassment for them as well. So it was perhaps in some ways even harder on Elizabeth, but it seemed to them that that ship had sailed. Zechariah, this priest, would go to the temple daily and do his priestly duties. And one of the things that they would do is offer incense he would enter into the temple, he had the right to do that as a priest, and others would stay outside and pray. And he would offer up incense, and he'd burn this incense, and it was in part meant to represent the going up of prayers to God. Well, he went into the temple and offered incense, and the angel Gabriel appeared to him. And Gabriel told him that he and Elizabeth would finally conceive. 
apparently Zechariah sort of scoffed at Gabriel. Now, he was shocked to see an angel. He recognized that he's talking to an angel. That's got to be shocking in itself. We don't have any sense that Zechariah's ever had an experience like this before, although he's a priest. This is not a common thing. But he knows, I'm an old man, he tells the angel. How is Elizabeth going to conceive? He actually expresses some doubt. And so Gabriel gives him a sign that he says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of the Lord. It's almost like, who are you? I came from the throne of God to tell you that your wife is going to conceive. You don't believe me? So he struck Zechariah mute in that moment. So Zechariah couldn't talk. And he came out of the temple, and people could tell something happened in there, and they're praying, and Zechariah couldn't talk. And we're told after that, Elizabeth conceived. So she's an old woman, past the age, apparently, of even having any hope in that. She conceives. Six months later, Gabriel appears to Mary. And we know Mary very well. We know who that is. Mary is a young woman, not an old woman. She's a virgin. She's engaged to Joseph. Gabriel comes to her and says that she, likewise, would conceive, not by Joseph, because they're not married. Mary says to her, uh, Mary, Mary says rather to Gabriel, I'm, I'm not married. How is that going to happen? I'm betrothed. Gabriel answers to her that she would be, um, she would conceive not by Joseph, but miraculously by the Holy Spirit. So Gabriel says in verse 132 through 33, he says, she would conceive and the son that she would bear, Gabriel says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He's a descendant of David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then Gabriel informs her of something really important. Your relative, Elizabeth, I don't know exactly how they were related, she's also pregnant. So immediately after, Mary, we're told, goes looking for Elizabeth, goes into her house, and Elizabeth hears her coming. And Elizabeth shouts out, rejoicing, hearing Mary's uh, voice. And in verses 142, through 44. This is what Elizabeth says to Mary when she appears. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed what would be fulfilled, uh, sorry, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Mary comes in, and Elizabeth is excited, and she knows what's happening because Elizabeth experienced a natural conception, but still miraculous in her old age, and she recognizes that Mary has experienced an even more miraculous conception, and they recognize this in one another. It's sort of like mother's intuition plus the Holy Spirit, and you get this coming out of Elizabeth's mouth, and she's so excited. Now, there's a couple things to notice about this greeting and this encounter between Elizabeth and, uh, and Mary. First of all, God did something really sweet and really gracious with Mary. Can you imagine how shocking and terrifying it would have been for Mary, a teenager at the time, to conceive? No one's going to believe that this is a miraculous conception. That's not how conceptions happen. We know exactly how they happen. 
So there's definitely something wrong with this picture. And that would have not just been socially embarrassing, but even socially dangerous. How would Joseph respond? How would her family respond? So she rushes off looking for the one person who could possibly understand, and she fully understood. And she not only fully understood, but she spoke blessings and confirmed. Despite the horror and the fear that Mary must have been feeling at that time, she had someone comfort her. Her own, her own relation, Elizabeth, who was all, also miraculously pregnant. And there's another neat part about it, is when Elizabeth hears her voice, she says, um, you're blessed because you believed the angel. Now, how did she know that Mary believed the angel? Well, because she hadn't heard her husband's voice in six months. And so if you don't believe the angel, you're going to be struck mute. And she hears Mary's voice and she says, you must have believed the angel. So you're blessed that you believed, whereas Zechariah was doubtful. Mary's um, got a tremendous amount of humility. And then she says this, the baby in my womb, who is John the Baptist, six months older than his cousin Jesus, leaps for joy. Now, here's the interesting thing about these stories, particularly the birth narrative, but as you get into the Gospels and read the stories of Jesus, if your mind is awash with biblical history, if you know your Old Testament history backwards and forwards, as first century Jews would have known in synagogue life, their whole lives were centered on these stories and on these laws. They knew these things. You would hear God in all of these stories. You would see it recapitulated. These stories are being retold, and in ways that sometimes we don't hear or recognize it. Leaping in the womb at hearing Mary's voice would have reminded them of 2 Samuel chapter 6, David leaping when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back into Jerusalem, leaping for joy and dancing because he was so joyous that the Ark of the Covenant, which carries God's presence in the midst of Israel, had been returned to Jerusalem. So when Mary comes, John the Baptist, who's already filled with the Holy Spirit in Elizabeth's womb, leaps for joy because Mary is the new Ark carrying God's presence in her womb, Jesus Christ. They would have recognized that and seen that immediately. Let me just tell you a story I wasn't planning to tell you, but just as an aside, my sister just got engaged to a wonderful guy. I just got to meet him a few weeks ago. I got to go to California and see my daughter, and it was amazing. I hadn't met him before. Uh, he was raised a um, very conservative Jew, and so conservative Judaism is very anti-Jesus, frankly. Um, if there's one thing that he is raised to know, it's that the Messiah is coming and Jesus is not him. So he was taught explicitly that Jesus is not our Messiah. He's a false Messiah. Our true Messiah is still coming. But he had never read the New Testament. He just recently got exposed to the New Testament. Now they're engaged and they're, they're gonna be married. My sister's a believer and she actually was very concerned about this because he's a very caring, sweet person. They came to fall in love. They have a wonderful relationship, but he wasn't a believer and she wasn't sure it was the right thing. And I remember we talked about this at length, um, but it seemed like, like God was moving them in this direction. He was recently, in the last few years, um, so not absolutely recently, but just within the last year, I'd say, really exposed to the New, Te New Testament and started attending church with her. His mind had been totally nurtured in a Hebrew biblical sort of religious environment. 
he knows these stories backwards and forwards. And for the first time, he's exposed to Jesus, and he can't help but respond, this is the fulfillment of all the things that I've learned. Jesus is all of these things. All of these stories come together in him. That's not always the reaction um, that, that sort of somebody raised in a Reformed Jewish environment might have. They might have a very combative uh, reaction. They might have a dismissive uh, or ambivalent reaction. Who knows? Same things were happening in the synagogues when Paul and Barnabas were coming and preaching in the first century. It was very divided. Some people were reacting negatively. Some people were reacting positively and worshiping. Jesus has this sort of, causes these sorts of divisions. It was so amazing to talk to him and to be able to answer some things for him that he had wondered. It was an incredible conversation. First century readers of Luke would have recognized this, that John the Baptist is leaping for joy like David leapt in front of the ark because God's presence had come finally to Israel. And remember, Eve, go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Eve is the mother of all the living, we're told. She's the mother of life and the mother of humanity. And now Mary is bringing new life into the world, in fact, eternal life in her womb. They would have heard all of these things just uh, in this blessing that Elizabeth speaks. So then Mary responds after that, and she says this. We're told that Mary says this. This is called a song. Traditionally, in the Western church, we're talking about Catholics and Protestants, the European-based church of which we are descendants, because we're Western Christians, uh, has called this a song, a canticle. And later on, we actually set it to music and uh, translated it into Latin and sang it for many centuries. Uh, you've probably heard of it before. It's called the Magnificat. And so it's sung. Initially, Mary didn't sing it. It wasn't a song, a pre-prepared song that she came with. These are called songs, but it's more like a spiritual saying that just sort of burst out of her. It's very much in biblical language. So the way that she talks, again, somebody whose mind is awash in the Bible would recognize it. She speaks in a very Hebrew way. And this is what she says in response to um, what Elizabeth said to her. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on my humble estate on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and he's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate, and has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Now, some critical Bible scholars, there are Bible scholars who are very critical of the Bible. They aren't really, let's say they're not really believers. They read it as literature, and they sort of dissect it. Some people have asked, how would Luke have known this? Luke, who purportedly writes the Gospel of Luke, wasn't even born yet. So he wasn't there to hear Mary say this. So they suggest maybe Luke just made this up. Did Mary really say these things? Well, it's a complex question. Some complex questions have complex answers. Here's my theory as to how Luke knew this. He asked her, he asked Mary, what happened? And she told him. So actually, some questions have pretty simple answers. This is one of those. At the beginning of the gospel, Luke says, 
to a guy named Theophilus. He says, I want to write you an orderly account. Apparently, Theophilus was some important person who had just become a Christian, and he commissioned Luke to write a really orderly account. He came to believe in Jesus, and he said, okay, now I want to get the story in writing all told. Can you give me the whole story for use in our churches? And so Luke says, absolutely. So he's a partner with Paul. Luke is a young minister at the time, and so he writes this gospel. He used Mark. He used the gospel of Mark, which was already Peter's testimony of Jesus's life and of the resurrection. So we've got an authoritative testimony from Mark. Mark already exists. He used Mark. And then he went out and did interviews. And he tells us that in John chapter, sorry, in Luke chapter one, he tells us in Luke chapter one, Theophilus, I went out and I did these interviews and I'm giving you an orderly account. So he simply asked Mary. And so Mary tells us this. Now, how do we know that really Mary said this? And this isn't just like Greek that comes out of, out of Luke. Apparently, it comes from before Luke. Luke has translated something for us, and we know this for a couple reasons. Well, one, because it sounds very Hebraic. It doesn't sound very Greek in the way that it's written. So Hebrew poetry has these parallels and contrasts, this sort of bouncing back and forth between this and this and this and this, and a lot of parallelism. And Mary's song here, the Magnificat, has those sorts of things. It includes allusions to the Old Testament. For example, Hannah's prayer. Hannah and... and uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she was a woman who was uh, barren, and she desperately wanted to have a child, and she prayed, and God opened her womb, and she gave birth to the prophet Samuel. And so there's allusions to, to Hannah's prayer. Also, the vocabulary in the Magnificat doesn't really match the rest of Luke, so it's sort of a unique vocabulary. It sounds like somebody else. And then also, certain New Testament scholars have recognized that if you take some of this Greek, and we only have it in Greek, and you reverse engineer it back into Hebrew, so you sort of translate it back into first century Hebrew, it actually makes sense. It's actually more fluid. So you get some statements in Greek that are kind of choppy and don't make perfect sense, but again, if you reverse engineer it into Hebrew, it sort of flows and makes sense and sounds normal. So it definitely came from the mouth of Mary. Mary said this in this moment. And as I was studying this and thinking about it, it occurred to me that the structure is sort of like an Oreo cookie. It's got a top wafer and a bottom wafer and it's got some filling. So I don't know about you, but most of us, when you get an Oreo, what do you do? Go, well, you eat it, yeah, of course. You don't, you don't give it away. Who would do that? What kind of weirdo? Anybody tries to give you an Oreo cookie, don't take it. What kind of weirdo are you? Nobody gives away Oreo cookies. You poison this. You eat the cookie. But if it's your cookie, well, at least I would go for the filling first, right? Most of us would go for the filling. So let's look at the filling. What is the filling? The filling is this sort of back and forth act of worship by Mary. She recognizes God for his greatness and what he's doing in her. And so he says, she says this. She says, on the one hand, he shows mercy to those who fear him. He shows mercy to those who fear him, who respect him, who recognize his power and his greatness. They don't flout him. They don't treat him lightly. He has mercy on those who fear him, but he scatters the proud. So you get this contrast, those who fear him and the proud. He dethrones the mighty. And in fact, the Lord Jesus will dethrone the mightiest of all, Caesar himself. As we'll see in time and through Easter, he will dethrone Caesar. And the Roman Empire, the greatest empire the world had ever seen, will fall. And people will no longer say for centuries that Caesar is Lord, which was common practice, which in fact was required of Roman citizens to say Caesar is Lord, like we might say the Pledge of Allegiance. 
They would no longer say that, but what did they say? Jesus is Lord. That was seditious. Jesus himself would dethrone the mightiest of all, and he would exalt the humble. He would feed the hungry, but he would send the rich away empty. And we see Jesus doing that in his own ministry, feeding the hungry and leading, uh, sending the rich away empty. And that's who Mary says God is. So when Jesus does those things, he's doing God stuff. Mary's already prefiguring who her own son will be. And when, again, when we see Jesus do this stuff, we recognize deity in him. We recognize God acting in him. So that's the filling. So now let's look at the whole cookie. So the top cookie or the top wafer, Mary says in the first couple verses that the Lord looked on her and has done great things for her. Well, what has, she done, what has he done for her? She's a young woman, a virgin, and a humble servant of God, and now she's been blessed. She becomes the mother of the Son of God, the mother of the King of Kings. What if you're told your child will be royalty? That'd be pretty awesome. That'd be pretty amazing, pretty unexpected. Your son will be the king of all kings, the highest throne of all. And then the filling, which we just looked at, those who fear the Lord, the humble, the hungry, are exalted over the proud, the mighty, and the rich. God is good and just, and he puts things in right order. And then finally, the bottom wafer, he has remembered his mercy and helped Israel. A small, defeated, and oppressed nation has become the epicenter of God's kingdom, where the Savior of the world reigns. So Mary's saying, in effect, what God is doing in me, although I'm really small and insignificant, I'm a nobody. Nobody knows me. I'm a young girl. I'm a nobody in a nobody country in the middle of nowhere. But what he's doing in me, he's doing in Israel. And what he's doing in Israel, although Israel is small and insignificant, he's doing in the whole world. So this is Mary's song and her response. And remember, Luke tells us that in our day, God has fulfilled all of these things that he's prefigured up into this point in Jesus Christ. And he wants to explain to us the full fulfillment of God's purposes in the world, in Israel, as all coming together in Jesus Christ. So this is the Advent Christmas season. This is the time where we want to meditate on and think about who the son of Mary is and who the Son of God is. Well, there's two things to really contemplate, and I think this really has a deep effect on your soul as you think and meditate and pray about these things, study these things, and really internalize it and allow it to change you. This mystery about who the Son of Mary is. First and foremost, we're told that he's God's only begotten Son. He's God's only begotten Son. Let me tell you about I've got two sons, and I've got two daughters, but let me just pick my oldest son just for the sake of the metaphor. His name is Nathaniel. When he was younger, I called him Mini-Me. He's a lot like me. He's still a lot like me. He's, he's an incredible son. I mean, he's just really, I love him so much. He's really kind of a dream son. I mean, he's just a great student. He's a great athlete. He's a sweet kid. He's a junior right now in high school. I wish he was here with me. I just love him so much. It, it makes me really, really proud. And even if he weren't those things, of course I would still love him. If he were the opposite of all those things, I would love him. Um, but I'm just, I'm just so proud of him. And I'm glad to see the man that he's becoming. I used to call him Mini-Me. Well, as, as I said, he's a junior now in high school. He's my height, maybe just a little bit taller now. He's not really Mini-Me anymore. He's actually pretty muscular. 
he can squat over 300 pounds, which is impressive to me. As it turns out, I, I didn't expect this, but I think now I'm mini-me, which is kind of shocking. I foolishly believed that I would always be me, but life is funny. So now I'm mini-me. Anyway, if he were here, he would see me and my son, and often you get a father and son next to each other, and you say, ah, I see the family resemblance, now I see it. Okay, yeah, that's your son. He's got to be your son, right? He's my son. He has certain physical attributes like me and even certain psychological attributes like me. Well, he was, as you know, being my son, if I tell you I got a son, you can assume I'm talking about a human, right? Humans produce humans. So our son, Nathaniel, my wife's name is Aaron, who is the sweetest, most Christ-like person I've ever known. Hopefully she'll, she'll be with me here uh, soon and, and you'll get to meet her. And so my wife, Aaron, and I had a son, Nathaniel, and humans produce humans, clearly. Jesus Christ is the only begotten son of God. What kind of thing is Jesus? He's not created. He's not an angel who's made. He's begotten. Now, there's no divine consort with which God the Father can marry and produce a child. So the production of the Son is not like the production of human children. The production of the Son is quite different. The Son, we're told, comes from the bosom of the Father, sort of like the womb of the Father, from the very being of the Father. And it's not as if God sort of miraculously conceived the son in himself, like sort of conjured up and gave forth a son. That's not how that works. The father has always been father. And so the son has always come forth from the bosom of the father eternally. The son being every bit as divine as his divine father is every bit as eternal as his divine father. So think of the birthing of the son or the begottenness of the son from the father, not like human begetting, where we all have birthdays and we have a finite age. God doesn't have a finite age. God is infinitely old. And he's infinite love. And there was never a time at which he began loving. He's always loved, so he's always had his beloved son. And so the metaphor is more like the sun in the sky, S-U-N, and its radiance. In fact, John says that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the Father. And so the divine son radiates out of the divine Father eternally. So it's not a choice. It wasn't the son doesn't come to exist by a decision because God can't come to exist by anyone's decision. God is not born. And Jesus Christ is just as much God as his divine father. They share in the exact same being. He's not a separate God. They share in the same being, but they are separate persons in that the father really loves the son and the son really loves the father. And it's not a sort of split personality or something like that. This is what we call, of course, the mystery of the Trinity. And we're already beginning to see this in the incarnation of the son. So the divine son comes from the bosom of the father into the womb of Mary. So in John 1.8, we're told that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father has explained him. That's Jesus Christ. John tells us this. So since he is the son of God, he's fully God. Just like my son is the son of Sanjay, he's just as human as me. He has just as many human rights as me. I don't have more human rights than him. Right? I have more civil rights than him. I can vote and he can't. I have more authority in our home, a sort of economic authority, but I'm not more human than him. He's just as human. And so the divine son of God is just as divine as his divine father. On the other hand, he's not just the son of God. He's truly the son of Mary. And so what we have to keep in mind is he's not a titan. The titans in ancient Greek mythology were half God, half human. Remember these guys like Hercules, son of Zeus and 
son of, I don't remember which human it was, doesn't really matter, but you've got a God and a human coming together to produce a child. So Hercules is half God, half human. Jesus Christ is not half God, half human. He's fully God. Because if you're half God, you're not really God. And he's not half human, because if you're half human, I don't know if you've ever met a half human. There are no half humans. If you're half human, you're not really human. He's fully God and fully man. He's fully human. He's not a titan. He's not a superhero who has sort of like humanness on steroids, humanness made bigger. He is fully human. And so we read in the Gospels that he has very human experiences. He thirsts. He, in Luke 2, he grows in wisdom and understanding. God is all-knowing. But Jesus grows in wisdom and understanding. He experiences pain. He weeps over the death of, of a friend. These are very human things. Jesus entered into our species and experiences humanness. He's not God wearing a human cloak pretending to be one of us, but really an alien. You know that old movie Avatar? Years and years ago, it was a really cool movie, right? But that's not quite the incarnation. Because there in that movie, you've got a human consciousness going into an alien body and acting in an alien world and interacting with the aliens, but he's not really alien. He has to learn alien things. This world, our cultures, and our species are not foreign to the Son of God. He entered into it. And so he entered into, apparently the Gospels don't tell us this, but an egg in Mary's own womb, using Mary's own genetic material, taking on humanity fully, and is really one of us, truly one of us. And that's the mystery of the incarnation, fully God and fully man. Well, okay, so why does that matter? I'm a theologian. I don't know if I'm going the wrong direction. All right, here we go. Moving forward. I'm a theologian. I'm a modern theologian, obviously. 21st century theologian. The ancient theologians, I'm not one of them. I consider them real theologians. They did some really heavy labor, some really heavy work. And what is it that theologians do? We look at the data presented to us in the Bible, and what we have are a bunch of wonderful, incredible, stunning pieces of a puzzle. And the task is to put those pieces together in a coherent way. So when you start to put a puzzle together, it makes sense. You start to see a picture emerge, right? I'm not very good at puzzles. They frustrate me. I go cross-eyed. Some people are really good at these things. My wife is incredible at puzzles. I don't know why she's so good at these things. It, it just amazes me. And um, my youngest daughter is really good at them, too. So when I see them go to puzzle, there's just scattered pieces everywhere. I can't make heads or tails of any of it. But they can immediately see these things go together, and I don't know how they do it. Well, that's what great theologians do. They take pieces and they put them together, and then as they put them together, you see a picture really emerge, and it makes sense. So as the biblical pieces get structured together, when we start to do this and we say, I see it, I see the logic, amen, it makes sense, and the church responds this way, they're doing it right. If the church responds and says, that makes no sense, that's not the faith that I feel by means of the Holy Spirit and that I see in Scripture. This is actually confounding me. This is pulling my soul down. Well, then they're doing it wrong. So the great theologians make the picture very clear for us. And there's two great theologians that I really respect. One guy's a guy by the name of Gregory Nazianzen. He, was a, he lived in the 4th century. And then in the 12th century was a guy named Anselm of Canterbury. Two guys that obviously never met. They lived centuries apart. But incredible theologians from whom I've learned a lot. And so as we think about Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man, which the church said at a council called the Council of Chalcedon, 
finally, the church said, this is what we say as Christians because this is what the Bible presents to us. He's 100% God, 100% man. He's not mixed. He's not half and half. He's not split. He's not divided. But yet, mysteriously, he is both simultaneously, fully and completely. And the Gospels present us uh, with, that, with that truth. Well, why is that the case? Well, first of all, he must be fully God because sin is killing us. Let me rephrase that. Sin is not killing us. Sin has already killed us. We're already dead. So it's not as if we, we imagine that sin, the things that we do wrong, the wrong intentions of our hearts, the way we destroy our lives, the way we hurt others, everything that is contrary to God's will for us and leads us to deep unhappiness, that's sin. It's not just killing us. And of course, we often practice sin, and we get more into it, and we regret it, and then hopefully we repent of it, and then we're restored by the Holy Spirit. It's not, again, not just killing us, but we're told in Scripture that we're dead in trespasses and sins. Not dying, but dead. Now, if you're dying, and you have some terrible disease, and you go to a doctor, a doctor can give you a plan, a treatment. You're going to take these medicines, you're going to go on this diet, we're going to get you this sort of surgery, and you can do certain things to bring yourself back to help. But we're told that we're not saved by good works. There is no good treatment plan for the problem of sin. There's nothing that you can do. That's really, really, really bad news. If you go to the doctor, you say to the doctor, how bad is it? I haven't been feeling well. How bad is it? The worst news you can hear is, you're dead. So actually, there's nothing I can do for you. You mean I'm dying, right, doctor? No, 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 no. It's actually beyond the help of any physician. Actually, it's worse than that. You're already dead. That would be the worst news. That's the news that we encounter in the New Testament. You're already dead. That's what makes the good news good news, because the bad news comes first. Because entering into the world through the womb of Mary comes the great physician with a capital P. The great physician who not only doesn't merely have a treatment for us. Do these good works and God will approve of you. No chance. Take communion repeatedly. Read your Bible. Pray often. Get baptized. No chance. Those things aren't going to save you. You'll do them if you love the Lord and if you're filled with the Spirit and want to have communion with Him, but they don't make God approve of you. The good news is God has apart from what you do, apart from who you are, apart from what you accomplish, apart from your goodness or how terrible you are, he approves and he loves. And so he wants to offer to us salvation. And so because Jesus Christ is fully God, Gregory Nazianzus tells us that he is able and capable to heal us from sin. So Gregory says, for that which has not been assumed has not been healed, but that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. So in other words, when Jesus Christ comes into the womb of Mary, he takes on the fullness of humanity, not just a human body, but also the human soul, healing both entirely because he's God. So when Jesus Christ comes into us, you are fully healed. You're fully healed. God already says to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. The goodness and faithfulness in you is him. But it's in you, and it really is now yours. Just like the divine son of God coming into the womb of Mary, that really is her son. That's her son. And if anyone were to take the baby away and say, this isn't, you're just merely a surrogate. This isn't really your baby. She would say, that's my son. And so the righteousness in you is really yours, given to you by Jesus Christ. Come, half of you out there are thinking, I, I didn't even know I had a womb. Wasn't, I wasn't even aware. Yeah, I, I don't have a womb either. Half of you do have a womb, but you understand the meaning. Jesus Christ comes into us 
and really is now ours. And so Jesus Christ taking on the fullness of humanity fully heals humanity. But then the other part of it is that sin offends, offends God. Now think about this. When we sin, the offense that we give is proportional to the being that we sin against. Imagine a really mean and vindictive man who has a falling out with his neighbor. And in response to the falling out with his neighbor, he does this. He goes and he secretly poisons the man's dog. That's a bad thing to do, right? What would you think of that guy? That's a dastardly guy. That's a terrible thing to do. That's criminal. That's wrong and it's criminal. There should be some criminal... Um, uh, we, ought to, we ought to prosecute him, right? We ought to do something like that. There ought to be some uh, price that he pays for poisoning a dog. What a terrible thing. But suppose he were to take it further and not poison the man's dog, but poison the man. Which is more criminal? Well, poisoning the man is more criminal than poisoning the dog. It's not okay to be cruel to dogs, but it's worse to be cruel to humans. Because humans are higher beings than dogs. Not everybody thinks that, but they're just wrong, okay? So humans are higher beings than dogs. Dogs are higher beings than, say, spiders, right? You could just sort of use your intuition here, right? So spider aside isn't a huge crime. In fact, we might give you a high five for that, right? But dog aside, oh, that's, don't do that. My gosh. And homicide, killing humans, it's horrific. So suppose we can't, none of us can kill God, but suppose we ultimately sin against God, flout his goodness, thumb our noses in his face, fully break fellowship with him. He's dead to us. Now we've, we've sinned against an infinite being and incurred an infinite debt. Now, if you've incurred an infinite debt, how are you going to pay that off? You can work your whole life. I don't care how much you earn, how well you do, you're not going to pay off that debt. But who owes the debt? Humanity owes the debt to God, and God is just. We might say, well, God could just wave his hand. Who cares? But that's not God's justice. God doesn't just wave his hand. He sets things right. He puts things in order for his glory and for our benefit. He puts things in order and makes them right. He doesn't just wave his hand at evil. And so things have to be put right. So Anselm of Canterbury, he said this. He says, if it be necessary, therefore, as it appears, that the heavenly kingdom be made up of men. So if God wants to save humans, and this cannot be effected unless the aforesaid satisfaction be made, unless things be made right, which none but God can make and none but man ought to make, it is necessary for the God-man to make it. There must be someone who has God's infinite riches and power, who can pay the debt, and it must be a human who does it on the part of humanity, paying the debt that we owe. So in Jesus Christ, he pays our debt to God. Only God can pay it, and only man ought to pay it. And so he's our great benefactor. He's our great physician on one hand, healing us, but also our great benefactor on the other, paying the price for us. 1 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus, uh, sorry, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for the sake of for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He gave us his riches and his wealth. So just as he came into Mary, he comes into us and gives us the fullness of his wealth. And so 2 Timothy 5, uh, 2, 5 through 6 says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So the incarnation is God's proof of reconciliation. 
between humanity and God. Since the fall, there's been a war between us and God. We war with God, and God wars against us. And the birth of Jesus Christ, not half man and half God, but fully man and fully God, he becomes the mediator that bridges the gap. And on behalf of God's justice, he does what's right. And for our healing, he takes on humanness and everything that we are, is tempted, tempted in all ways as we are, knowing our experience. He's not foreign to us. None of us can say to God, well, you don't know what it's like because you're God. It's not true. So in response, what did Mary do? Mary was humbled and she worshiped God. So God is humbling us and exalting us in Christ. When you recognize this stuff and you understand it and you deeply meditate on it, it's really humbling. It could bring you to tears when the Holy Spirit really impresses on you what this means for God to so love us that he would give himself for us, that he would sacrifice. I have that tattooed on my arm, Galatians 2.20. That he so loved me, Paul said, that the Son of God gave himself for me. And then recognize, just like Mary did in worship, let's have the, um, the team uh, come up, the worship team come up at this time, and let's actually put this into practice. Let's respond with worship, fully recognizing, fully inviting the Son of God to come into us, bringing his full presence. Just as he came into Mary, she felt divinity kicking in her own womb. So like I said, half of us don't have wombs, but he can come into our hearts. And this is God's real presence in us. Mary is a sort of precursor to the filling of the Holy Spirit that we experience and the full salvation that we know, and we know it now. He's loved us and he's given himself for us. Let me pray. Father, as we uh, have this Advent time and we think of your son, Lord Jesus, coming into the world, coming into the womb of Mary for our salvation and for your glory, revealing, Father, who you are. No one comes to the Father but through you, Lord Jesus. When we've seen you, we've seen God. You were the fullness of deity in bodily form. We recognize that fact of human history. This is a real event of history and we recognize it. This isn't a myth, this isn't a fairy tale, this isn't wishful thinking. We recognize that you did this. And in doing this, you took on the fullness of humanity into yourself, that sacrifice. You were rich and you gave us your riches. You emptied yourself, Philippians 2 said, taking on the form of a servant. And in taking on the form of a servant, you took on full humanity. Everything that we experience, everything that we know, everything that we fear, every way in which we suffer, you know these things intimately. You're one of us. We can never say to you, you don't understand. And in doing that, you've reconciled us to God so that we have full access as sons and daughters, walking in boldly, worshiping and fearing, but loving and being intimate with our Father, reversing the curse. Eden was closed. We were ejected from paradise with you, and you've torn the veil and made a way of entrance back in. We recognize that now in the incarnation. We look forward to your ministry, to your f further revelation. We look forward to Easter, to your sacrifice for us and your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.